Welcome to your Future Therapist podcast, where two friends discuss real-life topics about mental health and well-being so others feel less alone. I'm Kelly. And I'm Megan. And we want to welcome you to season two. So today we're opening the season with a discussion on emotional intelligence, or EQ, as you'll hear us describe it. We're going to head over to Very Well Mind's article on eight signs of emotional maturity to lead the conversation. And we also have two questions from our listeners, as well as my own pondering of this topic. So what is emotional intelligence? So I like to think of emotional intelligence as a set of skills that we're able to acquire and hone. And most importantly, they sit on a spectrum. So no answer is wrong per se, but the higher our emotional intelligence is, the better we're equipped to be able to be aware, recognize name, and also regulate our emotions, which then helps us to problem solve, deal with conflict, and practice behaviors to promote our well-being. And for everyone out there, we all have room to grow when it comes to our EQ. And EQ is a huge factor in the health of our relationships. So on our level of emotional intelligence, it affects our ability to communicate, our self-awareness, our ability to self-reflect, how we manage stress, um, our self-control, and our ability to understand other people's life experiences. So let's go ahead and jump into the article from Very Well Mind. It's called Eight Signs of Emotional Maturity, and we have the uh, link to that show or to that article in the show notes. So Megan, what is your knowledge of emotional intelligence? Well, I mean, the first thing that jumps into my mind is just reflecting on my um, my journey to emotional <laughs> intelligence and I have always considered myself to be mature and, <laughs> and I heard that a lot when I was younger, I always liked to be around people who were older than me and stuff, but that what comes with that when you are still immature is that you, you know, you think that you're justified with what your, what your reaction should be or how other people should be reacting. And so that's just like the first thing that popped into my head as you were you know, giving that explanation on what emotional intelligence is, is reflecting on younger Megan thinking about all of the times that I was just like, I know that I'm right in this situation. Like, I know that I have this handled, or I know that this is how I should be responding, or I feel justified in this and not at all understanding the nuances of the situation mm -hmm. or taking into account what the other person might be feeling, you know, so I was missing a lot of key parts of emotional maturity and I had no idea that I was. Yeah. I mean, emotional maturity, um, it, it's it how we develop it is from the environment, you know, one way is from the environments that we grew up in. Right. And so mm -hmm. it's very much connected with the caretaker, our caretakers and, and I agree with you. I'm very, I was, I'm still, I mean, there's parts of my emotional maturity or intelligence that absolutely need some major overhaul, mm -hmm. um, you know, especially in uh, relationships. I mean, <laughs> we could go over our many episodes of friendships and, and anyone could pick out, oh yeah, that's where, that's what she's talking about. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, but I do think, I really do believe if you're wanting to increase it, you can right? You can, right. I mean, it's any part of 
I look at it, I mean, I really do look at it like a skill. If I want to learn how to run or, you know, run faster, there's, there's things that you do to kind of um, train your body. And I feel emotional intelligence for most people is in that same, same realm of training yeah. and understanding and accepting mm -hmm. Right. It's something that you're not always right. And yeah. That, well, and yeah. I think that thinking about it like training is a, a a really good way, a really good analogy and a lot of things that people miss because I think that a lot of people want quick fixes for everything. You know, we all wish that things could happen immediately, but with your your emotional health and your well-being and all of that, you do have to treat it like if you were an athlete training for something and it's gonna look different, of course, than physical training, but you do yeah. have to treat it in the same way. Yeah. And it's, it really is a, a lot about emotions and being able to um, understand them and call them out, right? Like to recognize them and name them. And then how do you care for them? And mm -hmm. it's really hard for people uh, with, you know, I mean, it's really hard for most people, but when trauma enters from your early childhood or, you know, from experiences that you've had in life, it becomes difficult to then want to care for those emotions. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's get into eight signs of emotional maturity. So the first one is that you are empathetic. <laughs> so that's, I'm just going to read uh, a quote. So someone who has emotional intelligence is able to have empathy and show compassion to others. So that comes from Lisa Lawless, who's a clinical psychologist with Holistic Wisdom, Inc. Um, yeah, I mean, if compassion includes uh, and empathy include being able to set aside what your your life experiences are and try to understand what the person across from you is experiencing. Um, and this is, I think they put it first because it is truly one, the most difficult. Um, and two, it's so against the grain, I think, especially in our culture in the United States of how we uh, think of other people. Right. Mm -hmm. I feel like we are very much, it's about me. Um, it's how, how I relate to everything in the world, you know, and I've talked about that a lot through my healing journey. I really did have to look internally at how I relate and how I fit in the world. Um, and I think that that is one step toward, uh, working on empath empathy, but really the, the bulk or the, you know, the, the thing that really needs to be, uh, reviewed is, are you able to see somebody else's experience and understand that it's theirs and it's their truth and accept mm -hmm. that somebody else could have a different life experience than you do or have had. <laughs> and it sounds so simple to say it, to say it like that. Sure. But it's so hard in the moment when you're angry to to um, accept that and to feel that and to sit with it. And one of the things that's been helpful for me is to practice, you know, going back to training, basically to practice this, this type of concept, you know, all of these concepts will go over, of course, but to practice thinking about what another person's experience might be in a situation when there's not a conflict or mm -hmm. an issue or something that's related to me and my feelings and do that regularly. So then that way you're more used to that and your brain starts to go to that thought process at the beginning, like right away. 
And then when there is a conflict or there's trouble or something, then your brain is already, you know, being rewired to mm -hmm. think about how something might be impacting another person. My gosh. Yeah. It, and actually that's a really good point. It isn't always in conflict. Right. And, you know, I think about like my siblings um, and how we each had different experiences with our parents because our age ranges are so broad, right? I'm the youngest, the oldest is 12 years older than me. So, you know, the oldest is at 12 having a very different experience with our parents than, than I did when I was 12. Mm -hmm. And so that is one thing where that's actually one of the first times with, uh, that I realized that um, I started become to become defensive when one of them was telling me about an experience that they had. And I became defensive in, in defense of my parents. Right. And I remember the moment where I thought, wait a minute, like I, I didn't have that same experience that, that they did, but that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that they didn't have it, <laughs> have their right. experience. And it also doesn't mean that I, can't also think about my parents in a different way because mm -hmm. of what happened to that to my my sibling right like it it wasn't okay and it's okay that, that it wasn't okay for me to say I'm going to confuse this. It's okay <laughs> for me to support that sibling and recognize that my parents were in the wrong even though my personal experience with them, that those things never happened. Right. Right. And so that is part of kind of honing that empathy uh, muscle in that you're recognizing that you can actually have the dualities there. Mm -hmm. So you can have the duality of supporting that sibling, recognizing, acknowledging that that everything that they are feeling is valid and true and be pissed off at your parents for for doing that mm -hmm. while also recognizing I didn't have that experience and I still love my parents, you know? Yeah. And so that's just from a family perspective, you know, if anyone's out there and you're bickering, you know, you're having kind of something similar, you have to do, you do have to recognize that not everyone has the same experience in the, even the same family system. We all come right. at it with different experiences and thoughts about it. Right. Yeah, that's such a good example because I know like off the top of my head, as you said that I there was like multiple people that just flew through my head who have experienced that um, with their parents where mm -hmm. they had a certain experience and siblings had a different experience. And that's very difficult to navigate. It doesn't mean that it's that it's easy to navigate, but um, that's a very emotionally mature way to kind of shift your thinking and to and to view them because, you know, parent-child dynamics are some of the most difficult dynamics that, you know, any of us will ever have to deal with. Mm -hmm. But this sort of concept, of course, pops up all over the place yeah. with different relationships. Well, and then outside of family and friends, you know, obviously when we, we could dive into racism and oppression mm -hmm. and how are we empathetic towards people that have experiences that we've never experienced. I mean, I'm a white woman, 
right? And you mm -hmm. are too. And mm -hmm. so um, our, our lived experiences are very different from people of color and who experience oppression on a daily basis. I can't, I can't personally relate to that. But what I can do in being empathetic is realize that what they're saying is truth to them and to right. accept that what they're saying, that it is real. And it's, and I think and I have grown a lot in this area. Um, 10 years ago, I would have been, I would have been a denier, you know, and, yeah. and I am not that way now. Thank goodness, because yeah. I just feel like by um, learning about empathy and practicing it, and it helps to broaden your worldview and the fact that, you know, people need allies and there's a reason that that is is needed and so prevalent today like the conversations and the topics that we hear across the board on social media and on the news so right. it's it's beyond just who we are like in our little tiny communities it it's beyond that mm -hmm. okay the second one is you're able to recognize and share your feelings this is a hard one too it's mm -hmm. really hard to share feelings when you know especially a lot of people um deny emotions so if you you're a denier of your own emotions it's hard to communicate what you're feeling right um and to right. share or to be able to articulate um, how something has affected you, you know, whether it be mm -hmm. something someone said to you or an interaction or an event, it's hard. But if you are able to name it and share that um, experience in the way that you're feeling, then yeah, that's a sign of emotional maturity. Yeah, that is. Um, <laughs> I've never been. Um fortunately, I feel really fortunate about this. I don't remember a time in my life that I've been uncomfortable with sharing my feelings. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and I think that I was also fortunate that it was pretty easy for me to, as I, you know, started learning about my, what emotional well-being and, um, you know, being kind to others, having the empathy and stuff. It this was a pretty easy thing for me to um, learn how to share my feeling. Well, no. Okay. So I say that and no, I'm going to disagree with myself actually. So I think in, in most situations, it's been pretty easy for me to recognize, you know, when I should speak up and when I shouldn't, but I have always had this and I've talked about this on previous episodes. I've always had this like justification that I need to be right, which comes from all sorts of things from mm -hmm. my childhood. And so in those situations, when that um, is poking at me and I feel like I need to defend myself and people are thinking that I'm doing something wrong, I, I tend to then be like, well, I need to fix this and I need to share what's going on and I, I have to. People have to know. And now I have learned that's not true. So that has been difficult for me and pretty recent for me to recognize or like to learn when it's appropriate to do that. But I mm -hmm. do, I am very glad that that's been relatively easy for me to do to, I've always been really open, but also again, on like a flip side to that, or like a drawback to that is that because it was natural for me, you know, forever to be able to share my feelings, it's been hard for me to understand that it's not easy for everybody else. Right. Yeah. That's, that is so true. I was also going to 
mention, you know, if, if you've never really felt that you could uh, share your feelings, um, an experience that I had because I have um, did basically just denied feelings almost all my life, <laughs> like emotions. I mean, I have them mm -hmm. obviously, but, but the expression of them, especially as I tagged myself an introvert, you know, it would be if I express those emotions, then I'm actually shining the light on myself. So I'd much rather hide in the shadows and, and, you know, allow it basically allowed them to fester. So when I started sharing my feelings, um, and speaking up, it came through in a way that was super aggressive. And mm -hmm. so I just share this because being able to share your feelings, it will be on a spectrum, right? As you learn, um, if you don't currently share or want to share, but you decide for whatever reason, you're going to step into it um, or lean into it. So you might find yourself just blurting it out or being aggressive about it, right? And part of that, I think, is the fact that um, you have not been heard in the past, whether you've shared them or not, you feel that maybe at some point you've been uh, ignored, you know, maybe you did share your feelings and express yourself earlier in your life, but it was denied by other people. And so in that you feel that you don't have a voice, but when you do come back to that and you do want to start expressing yourself, you might find yourself being aggressive about it. Um, but just keep at it, right? Like it may ruffle feathers at first, people may not understand why are you so angry when you're not angry, it's just, you're trying to figure out how, to express all of those feelings that are happening inside and verbalize them so that it's out, right? Mm -hmm. So just keep keep that in mind that it's going to look different uh, for everybody. And as you keep doing it and, you know, also reflecting in those moments, it will, it'll come, become more easily, easily, I guess, um, verbalized and it'll start to become a conversation. And that's really where, when, when it says you're able to recognize and share your feelings, I think what they're thinking about is, are you managing those feelings and expressing them in a way that is actually healthy, right? My right. initial, uh, my initial blurting out or saying things in an accusatory tone, that's not, not the healthy part that they're talking about, but you have to start somewhere and then, you know, gradually reflect upon how can it be more healthy? How can the yeah. next time be more inviting for a conversation? So mm -hmm. uh, the next one is you're flexible and open-minded. This is hard. This is, it is, yeah. I mean, and you know, there's a theme, obviously having empathy, um, is a huge, you have to have an open mind to things. And so when you, um, when they get to this one, this third one, it's, it's a part of that, like they're all interlinked, right? Mm -hmm. Having an open mind that I think things are not, um, always just how you think or what your experiences have been. Um, so I'm going to read the quote from Dr. Lawless, a person who has developed a strong emotional maturity is flexible and open-minded by being adaptable to change. Mm -hmm. Change. <laughs> yeah, that's Which super so hard. so many people don't mm -hmm. like. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think that is? I think going back to evolutionary thinking, we like to be able to categorize things and to put things in a box um, because it's safety and security and we wouldn't be able to survive as a species mm -hmm. back in the day. 
if we didn't have that ability to group things together and determine them to be a safe space or not. And that is not our life anymore, but we haven't evolved past that because we're still a new species. And so I think that that's a very primal um, desire to make sure that we can stay in our safe place because that used to mean survival. And now it doesn't, but we we don't recognize that that um, like desperate need to keep things the way that they are, to stay with the status quo, to not shift things around too much, to keep things the same. We don't recognize that that is coming from an evolutionary perspective. And it doesn't just because something changes doesn't mean that we will die or that our tribe will die. Like that, that's not what it means anymore, but we haven't evolved past that. I, I really think that that's the biggest thing. And because it's so ingrained in us, because it's literally part of our evolution as a species, we don't, we don't understand that that's something that we have to like rewire in all of us. And some of us, of course, like change more and we're we're more okay with it but there's still always going to be those things where that you know make us hesitate to change something or it'll it'll come up in different ways for everyone Mm -hmm. and it's also that's not to say that you should never attach to anything or form a safe space because your your life isn't going to be threatened like that that doesn't mean that you shouldn't find habits that are healthy and find safe places and create categories and stuff you still should do that but we we need to recognize is this something that we are afraid of because we're used to being afraid of a change and we feel like we're being threatened in some sort of way mm-hmm. and we don't have an actual good reason for that threat or is this something that genuinely does need to this is safe and we do actually need to sit with this and have this habit so that's yeah that's what i think is going on <laughs> yeah i mean safety come came to mind yeah. too as i was reading that right um and it's interesting. I mean, everything you you said about the categorization, the feeling of a change in the way that um, people categorize anything, right? I mean, anything. It feels unsafe and people get defensive, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's great. Um, great ad, Megan. I really like Thanks. that. You're welcome. The next one is you're able to form secure, healthy relationships. I don't like this one. Just kidding. Um <laughs> Obviously, because this is this is where I struggle the most. Um, and so I'm going to read a, a quote out of this article from uh, Sephora Janelle Ray. She's MFT. And Ray says that secure attachments refer to a deep sense of trust, safety, and connection that individuals develop during their early years through consistent and responsive caregiving. Um yeah, I mean, you know, our, in those early years, that's where we learn uh, our connection to others, right? To the, mm-hmm. the people around us who are raising us and the family um, or the caregivers, you know, around us. And what are we modeling? What are we, you know, what do we end up modeling? And how are we able to also identify what is like trust, safety, and connection. Like those Mm -hmm. three things that Ray says, um, that I a hundred percent relate to, um, this being one of the areas that I, I need to, uh, work on, you Mm -hmm. know? 
Yeah. Um, it's really thinking about, um, you know, like going all the way back to caregiving when we were infants and not getting what we needed. It's so interesting because it, that is such a, um, a touchy subject for a lot of people because it, for a lot of people as caregivers, but then also as people who are children of parents thinking about how they might have unhealthy attachments because of their caregivers, because that automatically makes us think of really bad parenting because we think of, you know, when you were really young and you weren't able to form secure attachments, we were like, well, my parent wasn't neglectful. They always made sure I had food and they made sure I slept in a safe bed and all of that. Like we automatically think that it's really black and white, but it is so much more nuanced than when you're an infant. I mean, obviously, if you're in a really extreme example where you were abused as an infant or you were malnourished and that's that's different. And that's mm -hmm. what we all jump to when we when we first think about our caregivers being poor caregivers and forming insecure attachments. But it goes all the way through childhood every time you would try to speak your mind and shut that down. And right. those are the things that that teach us as people who were, you know, didn't grow up in, you know, a, a physically abusive environment or some type of extreme environment like that. We don't always recognize that that's also what that means by having poor caregiving is that we there were so many ways that we were shut down and we were mm -hmm. forced to make ourselves smaller or you know suppress things and that happens all the way that happens all the way through childhood so we don't we don't need to have that binary thinking of of what that means forming insecure attachments 100% i mean when i do think about my own experience i never felt unloved Right. My, right. I mean, my my parents always, 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 always lots of love and tell, telling me, you know, that they they love me. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, but obviously where the breakdown happened was just the ability to grieve and parent young children. I mean, it's it's almost impossible. Right. And especially, mm -hmm. you know, everyone comes to the table with their own life experiences. And that's, you know, that's how I look at like my childhood is it's just an extreme case. And then you put it on people who they themselves, you know, might've been emotionally immature in certain areas, which brings me to today and how, you know, kind of the thing that I'm pondering about this subject is, you know, I wrote, wrote down like as an, an emotionally immature parent, how can I bridge the gap between how I raised my children and how I've grown today? Because again, this is something where we all can change the way that we think about life and and this topic. We can increase our emotional intelligence by being reflective. And I reflect on this particular part all the time mm -hmm. um, because I know that my children, when they're older, and hopefully this does happen to them, um, if not already, and they just haven't, you know, spoken to me about it, but I want them to start to challenge the way that they grew up and and the deficiencies that they felt. I want that to come up. And the reason I want that to come up is so that I can be there for them differently than I was 
when they were younger. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it is a little bit, I do feel a tad selfish in saying that because I want a second chance, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I want to redeem myself, um, but that may not happen. And so part of my own emotional maturity growth is to realize one, it may not happen. It, they may never come to me and I may not be able to prove in that way that I have grown as a person and I can be a better parent to them as adults than mm-hmm. I was to them as children. Um, and that might not happen, but that's not for me to press on to them. It has to actually happen organically. And I think one thing that I am proud of myself is that I do realize I can't manipulate my way through this. Mm -hmm. Like this has to happen on their own time. And I just, I need to be patient and I need to continue the personal growth that is going to allow me to be there for them if and when that ever happens, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, We do have a question from a listener. Um, Let's see. The question is, how do you deal with someone with a low EQ? And I put it in this section just because we're talking about relationships, right? And I'm, um, this question, I know a little bit of the background, um, but I, it basically is, you know, an existing current relationship where there's a realization that, oh, okay, this person is just not emotionally mature enough to um, either work through the issue. And so as a person who has a higher EQ, how do you deal with that? Like, what do you do? Um, I, I think one, you know, just going to this list is making sure that you do recognize that everyone is at a different place than you are, right? It goes back to that being, are you empathetic? The first one. Um, And then the second is, I mean, if you could just go down this list, right? Like how are you able to, even with someone with a low EQ, it's important for you to be able to express yourself, right? Like, because if you start denying yourself just because you know that they won't be able to handle it, you're denying yourself, right? You're not allowing, right. allowing the emotions to flow through and out. The longer we keep shit in, the more destructive it actually is to us. And, and once you get out that anger, right? Because it just is going to fester. Once it comes out, it's actually going to be destructive to the relationship. So, I mean, those are just a few things. It's like, make sure that you're taking care of of yourself and that you are expressing your feelings, but that you also recognize and accept where they are. Right. Right. And they may not want to learn. They may not want to grow. And then you you have have to to accept that. You have to accept that you can't change them and, um, or you can't forcibly change them, but you can model what good EQ or high EQ is with the understanding that even in your own modeling, it might not stick, right? It might not mm. really uh, come through to them as uh, something that they should be looking at growing into. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so that, that once you recognize it, it's almost like, okay, I have to figure out if this relation, like where, what, how important is this relationship? And how is it um, affecting my health, right? How is right. it affecting how I live my life? Like, is it negative? Is it, you know, and then you have to unfortunately make some really hard decisions, but 
Um, you know, I'm not, there is no straight answer to how you deal with someone with EQ other than making sure that you are being true to yourself and how you're, you know, processing emotions, how you're behaving, how you're communicating and keeping your EQ high, right? Like meeting yeah. where you are as much as possible. Yeah. I think that that's, I mean, you pretty much broke it <laughs> exactly how I would have too. I mean, it, unfortunately there isn't a simple answer to that and you have to you have to um take it situation by situation and sometimes you'll you know be able to keep yourself distanced and sometimes you won't i mean it depends on how close that relationship is to you how much you have to see the person um and if it's somebody that you you know unfortunately have to see really regularly then how can you modify the conversations that you have with them to make sure that you're able to protect yourself, uh, you know, the best that you can. And, um, you know, it's just, yeah, unfortunately going to require a lot of nuance and a lot of like mm -hmm. thinking on your feet in the moment. And that's why it's important to, um, to practice your emotional intelligence as much as you can when there isn't anything problematic going on. So that that right. way, when there is a situation like this, where you have to think in the moment, how do I respond to this person that makes me feel really uncomfortable or really unsafe or refuses to listen to me or or whatever it might be? Um, you know, you'll be a little bit more practiced and ready for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another question, which is related to this particular um one about you're able to, to form secure, healthy relationships is what are the effects of being raised? by uh, someone with a low EQ. I mean, <laughs> we, mm -hmm. I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, we touch on it in multiple ways while talking about this particular, um, this sign of emotional um, maturity, but I think it, I think you go, I mean, again, it's on a spectrum, right? And in my own family with five, children, one, of course, dying when he was 16. So I can't speak for how his, how he would have um, turned out. But even just within the four of us, it's such a spectrum, right? It's so different. And we had the same parents. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the effects are, are also on a spectrum. I mean, I, I wish, really wish I could get into to the family, but I've never talked to yeah. them about this. But, you know, we all have different attachment styles. We all have different ways of looking at the world and we have different ways of communication and different ways of stepping into um, kind of what, you know, how we how we step into the community, right? We all do it differently. Mm. Um, and I think the effects, you know, if, well, one, I think we're all affected by it in different ways. But the goal, especially of this conversation, and I think of this article is like, don't look at these, uh, these signs as if you don't meet them, that you're deficient, think of them as goals, right? Mm -hmm. um, of ways to uh, open yourself up to having a different life. And I think the effects of being raised by someone with a low EQ, it, some of, sometimes it's detrimental, right? Sometimes you go through life like, not being able to have relationships or be able to take responsibility for your actions, which is the next subject. Um, and, and I think that we can all see 
these people in our, you know, in our lives, in our workplace, out in the community where we, we just see that something is, is a mess a little bit. Right. right? Yeah. And uh, the yeah. next, yeah, go ahead. If you had. Something. Oh, I mean, it's just, I don't, I guess I don't really have much more to add to that because again, you just nailed it, but it is, you know, it's, it's just, and, and emotional maturity shows up in so many different ways too. Cause you know, or the, your parents could be really solid parents, but they still also could be really emotionally mature. And chances are they are emotionally mature because we all are probably more emotionally mature than we could be emotionally immature. And so you just have to accept that that's, that's probably the reality of what did happen and, and, and accept that it's okay. And they also have the same situation probably with their parents and they, you know, they parented, I think most people are good. And so they, mm -hmm. you know, most parents are going to do the best that they could have yeah. done with the tools mm -hmm. that they were given and the experiences that they had. And so that's, that's helpful to think about your parents and the way that they were raised and how, unless they're really truly bad people, again, there's always extreme situations, but if that wasn't the case, then they probably did the best that they could and it's okay. And yeah, there can be ways to move forward from that. And I do think because I do talk a lot about the trauma that occurred in my own childhood. And then it's so it's important to recognize that those things happened right mm -hmm. now. I'm an adult. Yeah. So it's okay that I reflect on them, that I talk about it. I'm not blaming my parents or holding them accountable. What I'm doing is trying to understand what happened so that I can move through it as an adult. And so yeah. we do have to take accountability for our actions, right? Now, obviously, those actions get developed because of like trauma response and and things that happen and that we don't know how to care for what occurred. Um and yes, in a lot of cases, parents actually should be held accountable. What I'm talking about, especially from my own from my own perspective, um, and maybe a little bit for this question by uh, the listener, is there has to come a point where, as adults, we have to take uh, we have to be responsible from here on out, right? Yeah. Um, and part of that is maybe having conversations with your parents if that's gonna help solidify or clear things up in your own mind and how you, um, how you're dealing with it. But even if you don't have the ability to have those conversations with parents, you have to find a way to, um come to terms with what occurred and then mm -hmm. start healing the emotions that you have in a healthy way so that the behaviors that are associated with that start to change into more healthy behaviors. That mm -hmm. That is really the only way that we can kind of release our past so that we can move forward. Um, people find it really hard. They want to, and I speak 100% from experience, I would have lived the rest of my life blaming my parents yeah. um, for everything, for absolutely everything. Um, and I was actually also getting to a point after my dad died of getting pissed at him, like 
so frustrated, right, after he passed away because I started to recognize patterns or things that he did that were really not okay. Um, But I have to acknowledge all of that. I have to be truthful and realize that that is the truth kind of story of my life, but it doesn't have to keep me in it. Like, I don't have to keep myself in that story. I've got to start to change how I relate to it so that I can Mm -hmm. have a more fulfilling life. Like I want to have better connections. I want to have healthy relationships. Well, I can't do that if I don't start to deal with the shit, right? And move forward. So I don't know. I mean, I think that, I don't know, Megan. (laughs) Sometimes I'm just done talking. (laughs) Um, no, I think that that's all, um, really important. Like it's, we have to hold ourselves accountable and, you know, there's, I like how you said that there's, you can look at the situation with your parents as an example of, you can, you can explain why things happen the way that they did, but you still have to hold yourself accountable for the way that you move forward. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's that, like when you, you know, it's like one of the stages as you start to unpack your childhood and, you know, one of the the first stages figuring out what happened and why your parents did what they did or why things happened in your childhood and, and accepting that, that that's the reality of what did happen. And if there's something that needs to be discussed and needs to be talked about because that is genuinely going to help the relationship moving forward, then you can move on to that. But a lot of times you, that's not what's going to help or you can't, you know, Mm -hmm. your parent passed away. So you can't have any conversations with them or your parent is still alive, but is some type of conversation where you like get into the nitty gritty of like, why, why is this the way that you parented me? Obviously you don't need to say it like that, but is that going to help having that type of a conversation with the parent, sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. And so regardless, you then have to, once you've figured out the explanation for what, for whatever it is that's troubling you, then you have to recognize what your responsibility is moving forward. And I think that that's where a lot of people get stuck. And I think we, as a society are kind of in this limbo stage where we're, we're able to talk about mental health more. It's okay. It's acceptable now. And so we're, we're unpacking things that happened with our parents and in our childhoods. And then the next part is really hard, which is taking accountability for mm-hmm. your own actions and the way that you feel about them, how you're going to respond, how you're going to move forward. And, and also keeping in mind how that's going to impact all of the other family dynamics that are going on. So I think that you, you know, you're sounds like you're on that correct path as far as like you've you've analyzed what's happened and now you know that it's your responsibility how you're going to feel about how you were parented Mm -hmm. yeah and that was i think the fifth right the fifth (laughs) the fifth um was you take responsibility for your actions and yeah and Mm -hmm. um so i'm going to read the quote from dr lawless it's those with a high amount of emotional maturity are able to easily apologize, take responsibility and be accountable for the actions by understanding and accepting the consequences, which, yeah, we didn't really talk about consequences, but that that's okay. I think just um, 
touching on the fact of how important it is to be able to recognize that, you know, you are responsible for your behaviors. Um, so the sixth is you set healthy boundaries. This is a people pleaser red alert, uh, red flag. <laughs> we don't know how to do that. So this is a really good one. And this is another one where, um, you know, it's something I'm learning to do and, and to take, um, I think, um, ownership, right. Of, of what is works and doesn't work for you. And, understanding that you have this right to set boundaries with people and within situations that will help you to, um, be more healthy, right. Or to preserve your, your safety or your, your mental state and stuff like that. So I think that this is, this is a really good one. I mean, it could be a much longer conversation. Anything to add on boundaries? Um, not really. I think that one has been talked about a lot, um, you know, in, on social media. Yes, and I feel yeah. like that was one of the first things I think attachment styles and boundaries were some of the first things that really started to get popular in the mental health world. Um, so I don't know how much, you know, we would really have to say that would be different than what a lot of people know, other than I, one thing I do want to caution people on is you don't want to, you can't just say I'm setting up a boundary and you're not allowed to talk to me anymore to anybody that makes you feel uncomfortable because you need to sit with that discomfort. If somebody's making you feel uncomfortable for some type of abusive reason, obviously that's a different situation, but just because somebody brings something up that you need to probably take accountability for, you need to sit with it. It might be something that you need to reflect on. That's not you can't use boundary setting as an excuse or a crutch to ignore what you need to be responsible for. Thank you for saying it. Cause I think it does tie to the next one, which is you're able to resolve conflict. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so, you know, everything you just said, Megan, because boundaries can be used as an excuse to not have to yeah. deal with conflict. Right. Um, because conflict is so, un can be so uncomfortable. I mean, some people right. love it. Um, mm -hmm. but no, I do not. And this is yeah. another one where I really, I really do need to work on this, um, because I'm a recovering people pleaser. Um, yeah. so it's hard, you know, conflict and anger, you know, that's what I associate with conflict, but conflict is very broad. I mean, it can right. be a disagreement without anger, right? It can be, um, I mean, it can be all kinds of things that just need to be resolved. And if we're not able to have those conversations, um, it actually is not only divides the relationship, but it divides a little bit of what's inside of you, right? Because it's mm -hmm. not resolved. And when it's not resolved, it just festers like so many other things that don't get the chance to be uh, discussed or brought forward and, and brought out of you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, this is, I mean, not, um, or being able to resolve conflict, I think is, is in itself um, a skill set as well, right? Learning to have those conversations yeah. that 
is where you're very pointed in your needs, but also equally accepting or understanding or having empathy for the other person and their needs, right? Um, which is so hard because in my life and experience, a conflict meant either that person was or I was right and they were wrong, <laughs> right? And and trying to force my rightness on them, which you talked about totally. earlier. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I uh, obviously can relate. Um, and also conflict meant, meant really, really bad things too. And I um, have always been really passive um, and avoided a conflict avoidant, like obviously to a fault. It's not it's not healthy to be conflict avoidant like that. Um, I think that it is healthy to learn when to pick your battles and when to move forward, you know, head on into a conflict or when to step aside. And, you know, there's again with the nuances, like there's always healthy ways to do things, but I have always viewed any conflict as not okay. And, you know, the past five years or so I've gotten much, much better at that. Um, and I think what happens with people who are conflict avoidant it tends to just you know we avoid it avoid it avoid it and then there's something that that we do actually have to attend to and then it's like a blow up or then it's like it destroys you and mm -hmm. you know makes you have such low self-esteem or whatever it is it, it has such a huge effect on you because you're letting it control you you're letting the conflict control you rather than being in control of yourself and how you can respond to it so that's always been my experience. And and I also had extreme examples of um, with gymnastics, which Kelly, I was talking with you about recently <laughs> offline, mm -hmm. and I had really extreme examples of incredibly unhealthy, abusive conflict that was going on for most of my childhood with my experiences with gymnastics. And then I had not necessarily abusive, but really unhealthy um what I would consider in this context, um, conflict with teachers and how they would respond to me or how they would treat me when I was in school, but I was also really passive. And so it was this really bad combination of just letting all of this conflict hit me that was really unhealthy, but I had no idea how to process it or deal with it. And well, yeah, so, you know, everything and those, would be a lot different now. <laughs> I mean, that's also the examples you give are with people in power, right? Over right. like the coaches or teachers or people that we just, you know, the way that I was raised, you would never challenge a coach or a teacher. And so, yeah, when you are in that culture or environment, you can't, you, not being able to defend yourself, which mm -hmm. would be part of resolution, right? Conflict resolution. You can't, you, there's no outlet for that. And so right. we've learned that conflict is like we, we're being put in our place and we don't and, have a voice. And and then also when, when it became time for me to have a conflict with a peer, I didn't know how to deal with it sure. because conflict meant all of these people in power mm -hmm. taking away my power, any little power that I had. And it was and it was horrifying. It was so scary to always have this conflict being thrown at me. So then if I had a problem with a friend, I would just ignore it or completely avoid it or or whatever it was. And then I sit there like, what, you know, why is why can't this ever get resolved? Or why do my friendships always like turn into this or something? And it's because of all of these other experiences that I had and I never knew how to 
healthily resolve a conflict before. I, I, I don't know if I would ever done that, but I also didn't recognize that I didn't mm-hmm. know how to do that. It wasn't like I was being, you know, choosing to ignore the, um, the way that I needed to respond to things. I just, I had no idea that I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, no, of course we didn't have, we could, nobody was modeling that for us. Right. I do want to talk about <laughs> the word resolve, you know? So mm-hmm. when I initially read this, I'm like, oh, so someone has to be right or wrong. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. And that's not what it is. So when you resolve a conflict, Um, In my mind and how I am trying to grow into this particular line, um, this item is that, that it's not about who's right or wrong. It's about having the ability to put your thoughts and your views on the table for discussion Um, It's not going to like, I just think that the word resolve in so many people's minds means a conclusion that both parties totally agree on and accept. And I just don't think that that's possible with humans, right? We're not going to completely 100% agree with everything somebody else says, or they're not going to agree with us, right? There's, it's kind of like um, the compromises, there's um, the ability to have like difficult conversations that, that might not resolve things in that first conversation. And so resolution really is personal, I think, um, in what that means. Um, At least that's how I am trying to look at it so that I can come to, I guess, a better understanding of this particular, um, this, this one, right. Mm -hmm. The sign of emotional maturity. What do you think about that? Well, cause it is nice if there's an actual resolution and, Mm -hmm. um, both parties perfectly agree to things or come to, um, you know, a solid compromise and, you know, it's, it is wonderful if things do work out like yeah. that, but that's not the reality a lot of the time. And so, um, yeah, I think having that, having, being able to have a, a healthy resolution in your head of you'll do the best you can, you'll bring your things to the table, you'll have a healthy discussion, you'll listen to the other person, all of that, and have a resolution in your mind that, that, you know, you'll do what you can, but sometimes you have to accept the outcome and it might not be exactly what you want. I think that that's a really good way to think about resolving something as also resolving it in your Mm -hmm. own mind. Yeah. Great. Okay. The last one is you can manage stress in healthy ways. Um, yeah, I mean, (laughs) yeah, this is another one that, you know, I, I just, um, unfortunately I feel like I get stressed and it lasts for, well, I feel like it's lasts less time now than it used to, Mm -hmm. you know, where I'd go months and have no idea that I was just in this constant state of stress. I mean, now I recognize it much earlier than I used to. Yeah, I feel like um, this past semester, it, it was like a 10 day period before I'm like, I woke up, you know, and was like, wait a minute, like I am in this highly <laughs> stressful, like I'm living in this stressful, um, emotional state, and I've not really tried to care for that. Um, mm-hmm. So again, I think that also, you know, if you um, sometimes that's just the way we've been living our life that we don't recognize that 
we could actually be living it a little bit differently if we cared for it, you know? And I think that stress is something that people just believe that that's just how life has is, you know? Right. And, and it, it is for some people, I mean, there's all types of stress, right. From all Mm -hmm. different aspects of life. Um, but having, um, you know, there is actually a link under this particular sign that's a related article that says 18 effective stress relief strategies. So, um, we'll link the, the main, the article we're talking about in the show notes, but definitely be aware of that because if there's strategies that you can implement, it doesn't necessarily take away the issue that's causing the stress, but it's about how we're able to internalize and manage the stress. Right. Yeah. 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 Cause Mm, yeah, I mean, I've actually made the mistake of telling telling this was a while ago. So I have grown from this comment, eye roll, major eye roll, um, (laughs) telling, uh, two people who were having, um, and this was not related to my coaching practice. This was before all that, (laughs) but I told them, uh, a couple, um, you know, that they just, they really need to just let go of, of a couple, you know, of, of some extraneous, like stressful things. And the look that they gave me because they're living in their own world, right. They, mm-hmm. they, and, and I was not empathetic that, you know what, like they come to the table as two different people having life experiences and they're going to handle stressors in different ways. And what I was basically saying was just drop those things, like ignore them, you know, and it's just, Mm -hmm. it's so like, that's not a healthy way to process it, right? Like you have to, you have to care for yourself. So anyway, I just, that just came to mind of just like an old school think way of thinking, you know, that you can solve things for other people by just like disregard of like their life lived experiences. So yeah, not I, empathetic yeah. in the moment. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I'm definitely somebody that has tended to do that. And I'm sure that I still do much more than I should. Um, but that naturally comes to me as, you know, I, I, I can help somebody fix this. I'm just going to say it and this is what they should do. And that's not, not at all what, what needs to happen for them. Yeah. And I think that also comes because I mean, that I've done that. And I think it comes from a, like for me talking to that couple was about my feeling of, I'm not sure if it was safety or that feeling of, oh, I, I just don't like how it's affecting your relationship and, and that is affecting me. And so mm-hmm. by me saying this would just solve all that uncomfortableness. <laughs> So, you know, and so I think we, we do need to be cognizant when we're talking to other people. It's like, are we actually helping them through the issue or are we solving our own uncomfortableness by, by advising them in a certain way? You know what I mean? Trying to protect ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, back to this sign. Um, yeah, I mean, of course we, we want to be able to process stress and really name it. It's kind of like emotions, right? Um, something, uh, something triggers us and it causes this emotion that, that then leads to coping behaviors and, and those coping behaviors aren't, 
always in our best interest and and promotion of our well-being. And so stress can lead to kind of what I talked about earlier, just this numbingness of this is the way life is and you're living within that stress and never help trying to help yourself soothe in a way that's helpful. Right. Um, so yeah, finding ways to manage the stress in, in healthy ways is very, very important to mm-hmm. um, increasing your emotional intelligence. Anything on that, Megan? No, I mean, nothing more, I think, than that's already been said. Um, yeah, can't think of anything in addition yeah. to that. And so um, this article, I'm just going to read the the headers of what else they talk about. We won't go into it. We'll wrap up our episode. But they also discuss um, at what age do most people reach emotional maturity? Um, what does it mean to be emotionally immature? And then the final um, header is how do you develop emotional maturity? So I think this is a great article. I think that um, of course, it'll be in the show notes, as I've mentioned before, but it's just a great, like, especially if you've never thought about emotional intelligence and the the role that it has in our life. Um, and I'll also put, um, uh, I think it's a Wikipedia page on where did this come from? Like who thought of emotional intelligence? And it's actually relatively new. I think it's like from the 90s. Um, the first time it was mentioned, what I think was in the 60s. And then in the 90s, a couple of um, researchers started doing studies on it. So it's it's something that I think anybody can learn from. This is not uh, super difficult, right? This is mm-hmm. like crazy content of like, I think in each sign, there is work to be done that then gets a little deeper. But in general, if you're just looking to understand it, this is a great article, an introduction along with our podcast episode on it um, mm-hmm. of, of learning about emotional intelligence. Any, yeah. par- any parting words, Megan? Oh, I don't think so. I think we covered a lot and we could probably also go on and on about this forever. But I think that there's nothing else that's really sticking out at me. Um, Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're going to wrap it up and we want to thank you for listening to your future therapist podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, like, and share, and give us a five-star rating on the platform you listen to your podcast on. We're also available on YouTube. Um, I'm slowly loading up season one, but um, season two will go live on the Tuesdays and Fridays of the episode dropping. Um, This season, we're looking to engage our audiences and build a community of support. So we absolutely want to hear from you. Please email us at at yourfuturetherapistpodcast at gmail.com. You can text us at 530-733-6400. DM us on Instagram. Our handle is at yourfuturetherapist underscore pod. Every Tuesday through Thursday, I'll put a call out for um, a call to action, asking for input on upcoming episodes. So make sure to follow us on Instagram. Again, the handle is your future therapist underscore pod. Until next time, we wish you peace and well-being.